uh, I believe that I would agree with, with Ron Susek when he speculates that Satan may have rebelled, Lucifer may have rebelled, when he saw us created, and I think the point is that we're created in the image of God, with the capacity for glory. We're going to somehow, and this is one of those mind-boggling truths, we're going to participate in the glory of God. We suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. Paul says, when I consider the glory which will be revealed in us, revealed in us, now, then the sufferings in this life take on a whole different view. And this is again why it's so important that we understand uh, who God is and understand the glory of God because that's the perspective we bring to our earthly experiences. And Satan was jealous of the glory of God initially. See, he, he has always wanted to be a God, apparently. The Bible doesn't say that in so many words, but he tried to get Jesus to treat him like God, to bow down and worship him. He's going to come as uh, the man of sin, or the man of sin being a demon-possessed man, I would assume, and be opposed to everything called God or that's worshipped. He's going to place his throne where the throne of God ought to be, declaring himself to be God. That seems to be his great passion, to, to be a, a being like Yahweh, to receive worship and to receive glory. Now, he knows the Bible, and he knows that's never going to happen. You know, I've read the end of the Bible, and I know it's not going to happen. And unfortunately, many people don't seem to understand that. But uh, Satan is jealous of God, but he's jealous of you and me because we're going to participate in the glory of God. And so he's constantly out to uh, defame God in any way he can. Now, he does this in some uh, rather large ways, and this isn't the major problem for many of you, but let's just look at some of the, the counterfeit gods that we find in the world today. And I know it's not politically correct to say that non-Christian religions are demonic, but I don't see how you can analyze it any other way, because anything that takes the place of the one true God is Satan's methodology. That's the way he operates. Uh, he has to tell people only one lie to control them, and that is that they don't need to come to the cross. They don't need to come God's way into reconciliation to the creator of the universe. So uh, here's animism. Interestingly, most animists believe in a high God. There's been a lot of research done on this. A Catholic man from Europe years ago wrote very extensively on this and showed that most of the animistic tribes around the world actually believe in a high God of some kind. But they also believe he's so far away that you can't touch him. They have very fanciful tales in their mythology of how this God got so far away. The people of the tribe we worked with in, in West Africa, the women pound rice in a mortar with the, the long poles. You've seen pictures of them probably pounding the rice to get the hulls off. Said the women got so active one day they went up too high and they hit God and he went up far and so he won't come back down anymore because <laughs> he didn't want to get hit with the, the rice poles. Uh, well, fanciful stories, but the point is that uh, when you work with these people, they don't talk about Kurumasaba, the high god. They talk about the spirit beings. And so Satan has effectively alienated them from any contact with uh, the god that they call the creator, the god of the living. Uh, you move to Hinduism and uh, you get to uh, kind of uh, the other side of the spectrum where God isn't even a person. 
Uh, God is just a world soul. It's just an impersonal kind of uh, being that, that isn't, you can't say he's a person even, uh, just this impersonal spirit. And the ideal for the Hindu is not to go to heaven and live eternally. The ideal is to see yourself as a little drop of water, which is a collection of water molecules. And what you want to do is to get dropped back into the ocean of God so that those molecules are reabsorbed in God but can never get together and be a drop of water again. They call it nirvana. Uh, that's the lie that Satan has uh, perpetrated on uh, millions, uh, billions uh, almost, of people today around the world who are into Hinduism. My wife just uh, worked with a Hindu lady uh, a few weeks ago from our city in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Her parents are still um, uh, Hindu, and she brought a lot of baggage with her that needed to be straightened out from uh, her past, not only her view of God, but her view of, of and practices in many other ways as well. Or you go to Buddhism, and, uh, and Buddhism believes in God, but uh, uh, Gautama was a very wealthy prince in India, and, and he decided to go out and explore the world and see how things worked. And he tried asceticism, and he tried Hinduism, and he tried this and that, and he finally came to the conclusion that if there is a god, or if there are gods, they're powerless, so I've got to do it myself. And he developed the noble eightfold path uh, to get to nirvana. Uh, so again, God is far from what he really is in this kind of a thing. You take Islam, and God in Islam seems to be a little closer to the kind of God we know. And if you study Islam in uh, the university, uh, it will be portrayed as a monotheistic world religion with Allah being very similar to the Christian God, uh, Yahweh, except that he's very, very different, a very arbitrary, not a loving God, a God who just decrees and it happens. Uh, we worked with Muslim people uh, as missionaries, and you know a man would stand before the judge, and the judge would say, why did you do that? He said, what God wills. And a man came to the hospital, a leg full of gangrene, because they treated it with native medicine, and the doctor said, why didn't you come sooner? We could have healed that, that leg. We're going to have to amputate it now. And they said, what God wills. The God is just a very arbitrary God. No point in talking to God. No point in really praying to him except to repeat the prayers in order to maybe stay on the best side of him. But you can never really be sure you're going to heaven in Islam unless you die in a holy war. That's the one way you can be sure that you do it. That's why you get these... Uh, men committing suicide in, in uh, suicide bombings because they're assured that they will then go to heaven because they're killing heretics. Uh, what, a, what a God, you know. And what the Muslims end up doing is turning to the spirit world. And they're animistic at the bottom crust of, of Islam. And if you want to win Muslims to Christ, you better be prepared to deal with the spirit world because that's where their power structure is. Uh, coming closer to home we've got the New Age movement where we've basically gone back to Hinduism or Buddhism where everything is God and you are God and the, the one sin of the human race is not recognizing our Godness and if we would just say I am God, I am God and I can control my own destiny and we'd all do that and we'd all begin to, to think the same way uh, all think peace if we can get enough people around the world thinking peace because we're God we can create peace in the world. Uh, 
great perversion, of course, of, uh, of what the truth is. Witchcraft uh, is a swing back to the old nature gods and goddesses, particularly the goddesses, the pre-Christian uh, deities. Uh, witchcraft today, of course, is a multifaceted thing. There are all kinds of versions of witchcraft. There isn't just one kind of witchcraft, but it, for the most part, it is the swing back to the old nature gods and goddesses and uh, again, a perversion of the truth. Or secularism, that human reason is God. The Enlightenment movement, which has basically been the, the formative influence in our Western culture. Uh, it's an 18th century movement led by men like uh, Immanuel Kant and, and Rene Descartes uh, said, we don't need a God or some supernatural force to make us significant. We're significant because we're reasoning human beings. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And so, again, God is relegated to a, a, at least insignificance, if not not existence. But then we have perversions of the Christian God. There are those who are dealing with what they understand the Bible to say about God. And one of them, of course, is that there isn't any God. Now, it's interesting that when they have to deny God, they're in a sense, uh, talking about the God that, that we're talking about. But the scriptures are pretty clear about this. Uh, the, uh, Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And you understand the belief of atheism. Uh, then there's deism, which uh, was really the belief system of many of the leaders uh, in early America. That's uh, not too well understood by many people, but Deism said, oh yes, there is a God up there. He's the creator. He made this world. He started it running according to what we call the laws of nature. And then he went back to heaven where he sits on his throne and he just lets the world run. He doesn't interfere with it. And that leads to uh, a belief in a kind of uh, uh, theistic evolution or uh, the idea that this world really is a sort of neutral place now that's running by these neutral laws and God isn't really involved, so you don't really have to worry about relating God to life. Uh, a perversion, again, of, of the Christian view of God. This was the view of uh, Thomas Jefferson, of a number of the other uh, early leaders in our country. Then there are caricatures of God. Uh, God is a, a judge who specializes in condemning. Some people who come for counsel say, you know, it seems like no matter where I read in the Bible, I feel condemned. And, of course, that's the work of the enemy, that he's just constantly saying to them, you're bad, God's a judge, and he's always going to be judging you. You can never be good enough. And if you believe that, of course, that's the way you're going to live. I have a basic premise that I work on in all of my ministry that people may not live what they say they believe, but they will always live what they really believe. Is that true? That what you do holler so loud I can't hear what you say? You know, so if I were going to examine someone for ordination even, I wouldn't have an ordination council and put them through a theological test. I'd go and live with them. I'd watch what they do with their 24 hours. I'd watch what, they, what makes them angry and what they do when they get angry and how they handle impatience when they're being tested and when they're being humiliated or whatever, how they respond to that. And they will tell me what they believe by what they do. Is that right? You know, it's like the man who was being tested for 
mission service and the man was assigned to do this and he made an appointment for this man to come to his house at four o'clock in the morning. Seemed a little unreasonable, but the man cheerfully uh, agreed to do that and he came, arrived at four o'clock, and the man let him sit there until six o'clock before he talked to him. And he came in and asked him to spell cat and he spelled C-A-T and, and basically dismissed him and said he was done. And he went to the committee and he said, you know, I think we've got a pretty good man here. I tested him for submission to authority and he did it just fine. He didn't complain about coming at an unreasonable hour. I tested him for patience. He waited two hours to see me and didn't complain. Tested him for humility. I asked him to spell something a first grader could spell and he didn't complain. I think we've got a pretty good candidate. Well, uh, that uh, may not be the, the only way to screen, but uh, you know, I think it says uh, an awful lot about uh, people, doesn't it? So uh, he has caricatures of God, and one of them would be a judge, one of them would be a, a policeman who enforces the law. I grew up in a very legalistic uh, setting where there were rules for everything. And you know, we took our spiritual pulse every day by, I don't do this, don't do this, and I do do this, and do do this. Okay, I'm okay today, you know, and uh, it's it's like there is this set of laws, these set of rules that we have to obey. Uh, Satan loves to pervert uh, in this way. And interestingly enough, the the Muslims have rules about almost everything. A remarkable missionary I know over in Nigeria had a, a Muslim convert come to her one day and say, uh, "What are the Christian rules about this particular thing?" And uh, she said, "Well, you know, we don't have rules." We have uh, laws, we have the law of love, and if you can do that out of love for God and love for your neighbor, then it's all right. And if you can't do it out of love, then it's not all right. Well, you see, that's the, that's the difference between the external rule and the internal rule of, of the spirit in us, the law of love being worked out through us. Uh, maybe he's, uh, on the opposite side, he's the kindly old grandfather. I'm a grandfather 12 times, and. Grandfathers have the privilege of loving them and leaving them. You know, we can spoil them and send them back to their parents to deal with. Uh, and uh, sometimes we get the idea that uh, God's like that. Uh, and we get these ideas from uh, from a variety of, of places. Uh, I'll show you the filter, how the filter works here in a moment. Uh, but there is the the, the hard-to-please God, the, the legalistic one. This is like the uh, boy who got... C's on his report card, and his dad says, well, if you worked hard, you could get A's, you could get B's. And so the boy worked hard, and he got some B's, and he brought his report card to his dad, and his dad looked at it, and he said, well, if you really worked hard, you could get A's. So he really worked hard, and he got some A's, and brought his report card to his dad, and he looked at it, and he said, well, you probably got an easy teacher. And uh, there are some parents who are just, you know, can't please. Every time I tell that story, there are people in the audience whose head's going up and down because they had a father like that or a mother like that or someone in their life like that who, you know, they just was never quite good enough for them. And uh, pretty soon that's the way God becomes. Uh, you, you see God as uh, the hard-to-please God. And it... Uh,
Satan is a master at putting thoughts into your mind and making you think they're your thoughts. Uh, this is, this is a, a, a key idea, and uh, uh, he brings people into bondage this way. Uh, this is a little diversion, but let me just illustrate to you how this worked in the life of a missionary. Uh, this man was a doctoral student at the seminary where I taught, and he came to my office one day and he said, Dr. Warner, what's wrong with me? Every time I try to pray, I have perverted sexual thoughts go through my mind. I said, well, there's probably nothing wrong with you. Uh, where did those thoughts come from? We know they don't come from God. We can eliminate that. I said, are you uh, looking at pornography, reading purient material? He said, I hate it with passion. I said, well, you know, if you're not putting it there and God isn't putting it there, where do you think it comes from? It comes from the pit. And Satan puts that thought into your mind, and then he turns around points his finger at you and says, and you're supposed to be a missionary, a teacher of theology, and a seminary. That's what he was doing out in the mission field. And you can't even pray without thinking things like that? I said, you need to do what the Bible says and take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Now, now if the man had been doing pornography, whole different problem. I'm not in any sense justifying putting purian thoughts into your mind. But this man wasn't doing that. The devil was binding this man up and trying to the mission field. So I talked to him by taking your thoughts captive and saying the truth about things instead of the lies. And when that thought comes, I said, you just say to it, I know where you came from. You didn't come from God, so I don't accept you. In the name of Jesus, I command the spirit that's pushing on this to leave me. And I choose to think God's thoughts and immediately start quoting scripture. It really doesn't matter too much what scripture it is. It's good if it's praise scripture or if something is relative, but you know, I love to turn to Psalm 138. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart before the gods. I will sing your praise. I see the gods as the, the demons out here that are trying to attack me. Anyhow, uh, Satan will put those thoughts into your mind. Well, the sequel of the story is that he came back a year later and he said, I want to thank you for what you told me last year. He said, when you came in, I came in, I thought maybe you'd cast a demon out of me and I'd get rid of my problem. And I'm glad it didn't happen that way because as I've learned to take my thoughts captive, it's changed me, it's changed my marriage, it's changed my family, and I'm going back to Africa with a whole new perspective on my ministry. He's since been moved into leadership in his mission. Uh, so Satan will put these thoughts into your mind, and you may be sitting in church, and you'll have this blasphemous thought about God. You wonder, what in the world's wrong with you? And Satan's going to be there to accuse you. Uh, unhealthy interpersonal relationships. images of God from our parents more often than from any other. The earthly father tends to become the heavenly father. Uh, but an earthly mother can be, get transferred to the heavenly father concept too. The parental role so important. I'll show you a little bit later uh, some further ideas of how that works. And then uh, the self-defense mechanisms, ways we defend ourselves instead of trusting in God. And so God is really loving and caring, but when it passes through one or more of these filters, he comes out looking hateful. Do what, what uh, you ought to do, then I'll love you. See, God doesn't, God doesn't love you more or less because of what you do or don't do. God loves you because it's his nature to love. 
Uh, we'll come back to that idea as well. But uh, you can look through all of these uh, uh, ways in which these concepts of God get perverted because that's, that's Satan's business. That's what he's uh, about doing. Now, uh, let's uh, turn to looking at the God of the Bible because that's what we really need to know. And I want to call your attention first to uh, Psalm 85. When I was a, a boy, I was part of a old Methodist camp uh, class meeting kind of group that had prayer meetings every Tuesday night. And I remember hearing some of the older people in the group quote uh, this verse which says, uh, mercy and truth are met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And as a boy, it didn't mean anything to me. But if you look at this psalm, uh, he's talking in verse 3, for example, you set aside your wrath and turn from your fierce anger. And that's one side of God. You go down to verse 7 and he says, Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. That's another side of God. How do you get the anger of God and the love of God together? Well, that's the remarkable thing about God that they do. They come together. And that's the point of verse 10, which says, in the NIV, it says, Love and faithfulness meet each other. Uh, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Righteousness is the legal demands of the law. That's the, the, the wrath side of God. But peace is the, the love and the grace side of God, and they meet in God. Now, we're going to look at that in a little more detail as we move along, but uh, this is one of the problems in our understanding and knowing God, that he combines qualities which we find hard to bring together, and we don't see them uh, manifested in human experience very often, and so we... Uh, we just turn from them. But we need to begin, first of all, with a God who is utterly trustworthy. Uh, God is the only person in the world, in the universe, who has perfect integrity between what he says and what he does. Only one. Uh, we all try. We want to, be, to have integrity, but I've never met anybody who at some point didn't dis disappoint me. I used to always look for someone to be a model for my life, and I would find them, and I would begin to get close to them, and then I'd get disappointed because they weren't perfect. We're not perfect. That's just why we've got to keep our eyes on God, but God is perfect. Uh, Jesus had something to say about that to the people of his day, and this is a quotation from the, the paraphrase called The Message. He says, I have so many things to say to you that concern you, judgments to make that affect you, but if you don't accept the trustworthiness of the one who commanded my words and acts, none of it matters. That's a pretty sweeping statement, isn't it? If you don't accept the trustworthiness of God, nothing else matters. Uh, that is who you are questioning, not me, but the one who sent me. Now, you've probably heard it quoted uh, from, by preachers somewhere along the line, but recent research indicates that most Americans don't believe there is truth, don't believe there is an absolute word which comes from any source. And even those who say they are born-again Christians, evangelical Christians, more than half of them say they don't believe there's truth. Now, I don't know how you put those two things together, but this is the degree to which our culture, our anti-authority culture that 
that Ron was speaking about in the plenary session has influenced even the church, even people in the church. Why the recent surveys indicate that uh, moral standards in the church among Christian young people aren't really different than those outside. Divorce rates in the church are essentially the same as outside the church. Now, that may be skewed a little bit by uh, the fact that they incorporate all the liberal uh, elements in the church as well as the evangelical, but uh, even allowing for that, uh, we've, we've got a big problem on our hands that uh, we haven't started with a God who is utterly trustworthy, or whose word you can trust. Uh, we've, we've, we've just got to begin there, and we could talk a long time on that probably, but uh, I just want to affirm that up front, because without that, we're, there's really not too much point in going further, because we're talking about revelation. See, this was... Uh, this was accepted as the starting point of, of Christian truth, in fact, of our whole culture back in the uh, 300 years ago in the Western Europe. The university said theology is the queen of the sciences. And you went to the major universities in Western Europe, and theology was at the center of the curriculum of the state universities. Uh, that's changed dramatically, hasn't it? Theology doesn't even have a place in the curriculum. We talk about spirituality in the neutral sense of spirituality, but you can't talk about revealed truth. And so this is our uh, uh, a problem that we often begin with up front. But then we need to look at what the Bible does say about this God. And the place I think we need to begin is that he's a God of wrath. Now, we could begin a number of places, but... Unless we understand the wrath of God, there are many other things that we're not going to understand about him. This word wrath is used uh, 240 times in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, 209 in the Old, 35 in the New. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, uh, 24 says that God is a jealous God, a consuming fire. In uh, Exodus 19, we have the account of God coming down on Mount Sinai and the mountain was covered with smoke, and they heard the trumpet and saw them, the uh, mountain quake actually shake, and they trembled with fear. Uh, and the people said to, uh, to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us, or we will die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you for what purpose? Do you remember? To keep you from sinning. To keep you from sinning. Unless you understand, unless we understand, the wrath of God against sin, we won't have a proper view of sin. Sin is not known by participating in sin. It's not the person who has committed the biggest sins who knows what sin is. Who is it? It's the person who's closest to God, who knows his holiness the best, who, who has come closest to him. Jesus said to Simon the Pharisee, He that is forgiven little loveth little. He that is forgiven much loveth much. That kind of sounds like if you came from a Christian home and you didn't really get into very much sin, you'd ought to go out and commit a bunch of sins so you could have a lot of sin to be forgiven, so you could have more love. Is that right? 
Yeah, may it never be. You can hear Paul say, God forbid, you know, who would have that kind of a view uh, of sin? Well, then what determines how much you're forgiven for? How well you know God. And again, forgive the, the repetition from yesterday, but uh, Job illustrates this, I think, for us very well. You know the story of Job. Uh, he went through this deep, deep valley with God where God allowed Satan to, to take away everything that he had. See, Job proposed a, a test for God up front. He said, you know, everybody's got a price. You understand that? If you pay them enough, they'll do anything. Uh, wealthy old man propositioned the beautiful young lady about spending the night with him. He said, certainly not. And, uh, said, what about a million dollars? Well, I'd have to think about that. Uh, what about 5,000? He said, what kind of a girl do you think I am? He said, we've just established that when now we're talking price. The minute she said I'd have to think about it, she said, there is a price for which I wouldn't have a conviction anymore. And that's what Satan is saying about Job, that you're paying him. So God says, okay, you can take away his pay, and God will still, and Job will still be faithful to me because I'm God. And they got all through this, and Job had this long talk with God, and they had some things to get straightened out, uh, understand all that. But what did Job say at the end? God, I've heard of you with the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes see you. I know you in ways I would never have known you before. Therefore, what? I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Not because he'd been committing gross sins, but because this new view of God had given him a whole new perspective of sin. And if you have a low view of sin, it can only be because you have a low view of God. And if you want people to become sensitive to sin, then you need to, to give them a sense of, of who God really is. It's like Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, you know, and he gets criticized. That's just not politically correct today to talk about sinners being dangled over the fires of hell by a thread. Uh, but unless you understand that that's the, the destiny for the sinner, uh, you're not going to understand the awfulness of sin. The sin has those kinds of eternal consequences. So we need, first of all, to understand the wrath of God. Secondly, uh, we need to understand uh, that God is a God of unconditional love. Already made the basic statement that he loves because it's his nature to love. And Roman, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says, in love... God predestined us. See, this was before we were created. It was way back there before the, the start of the world that in love he acted. Why did he act in love? Because he is love. That's his nature. In love he predestined us to be adopted into his family. Uh, you know, this is again one of these mind-boggling truths that, that we unworthy sinners who deserve to go into the fires of hell are not only forgiven for that and escape the hell, but we get adopted into the king's family and become his heirs. Uh, tremendous, tremendous truth. But unless you understand uh, these two things about the, the wrath on the one hand, the unconditional love on the other hand, why it's not going to come out right. But then you need to understand that, that God is a God of grace. Uh, the law of sin and death says that we're hopeless sinners. Uh, and we need to understand that. That's where we'll be. I'll be anywhere in the world with, with clear lines of authority and with constant love. Authority administered in love. That's the ideal parent. That's the, the biblical concept. What's Sierra Leone. And uh, they said, well, uh, you know, I go to church and I sing the songs and I pray and I've been baptized, so I'm a Christian. What does that define a Christian? You know, what about your relationship to the Lord? And uh, so he began to 
to teach them back from the Old Testament about this God of holiness and this God of wrath against sin. There just is no way. See, the animists say, if you know the right ritual to go through, if you know the right combination of things to put together, the right ceremony to perform, why, then you can get on the right side of the Spirit. So we Christians come along and we say the right way to get inside of God is go to church and memorize the songs and say the words and get baptized, and then you can get the right side of God. And that's the way they interpret Christianity very often. But they don't talk anything about their sin being forgiven and Christ being a substitute and coming into a new relationship with God. So he began to teach them that. And uh, he didn't teach them anything but the wrath of God, anything but, but the old law principle of sin and death. And they finally said, missionary, if that's true, we're hopeless. Now they're ready to hear the gospel. Right? Now they're ready to hear the gospel. Now they can hear it for what it really is. But you see, if you don't understand sin, you don't understand grace. We sing amazing grace, but I, I'm afraid that most Americans don't find grace too amazing. They kind of feel that they really deserve it, that God owes it to them. Uh, grace becomes amazing as you understand sinners in the hands of an angry God. And this is why our view of God is so, so foundational to our whole Christian life, that we're not going to understand even the process of salvation unless we get this straight. Now let's define grace. Uh, some of you have been through EE training and they have good definitions. Uh, uh, justice is getting what you deserve. Uh, as a professor, I think of it this way. I, I give them an assignment and the assignment says there's a paper due every two weeks on Friday. No late papers will be accepted. First paper comes due and one student comes and says, Prof, I just need one more day to finish this right. I've been sick this week. Okay, I'll give you one day. Next week, uh, four students come and say, Prof, we just need one more day to do this. Well, okay. Uh, third paper comes due, 12 students come. Prof, we need one more day. Did you read the assignment? No late papers will be accepted. You all get zeros. That isn't fair, they said. Oh, it's justice you want. Then all the late papers get zeros. That's justice. No gift. No gift. That's justice. Who wants justice? Thank God we don't get justice. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's the convict standing before the judge, and the judge says, you're guilty, but I'm waiving the sentence. You're free. Good news, isn't it? Great good news. Unfortunately, that's where most of our preaching stops, with the good news of forgiveness. But there's another step, and that's grace. And that's the judge, the prisoner standing before the judge and judge saying, you're guilty. I'm waiving the sentence and I'm going to adopt you and take you home with me and make you my heir. Can you imagine that? That's what God does for us. That's grace. Grace is getting what you could never deserve. One writer says it's like a, a king issued blanket amnesty for all pr uh, uh, prostitutes in his kingdom. If you'd been one of those, why, that would be good news that your past was going to be locked out and you could start all over with no prejudice to your past. Well, that would be good news, but the best you could say at that point was, I'm a forgiven prostitute. But if the king comes to one of those women and says, I want you to marry me and become the queen, what happens to her? She's given her new identity, isn't she? She hasn't earned it. No. Not something she did. The king just says, I'm going to make you the queen. You know. Or you're adopted into the king's family, and you can think the way you used to think when you were an orphan back there, or you can say, 
wow, I'm a prince, I'm a princess. I need to learn to think and act like a princess. That's grace. That that's what God does for us. And that these false views of God, this hard to please God and all of that, that's not the way it works. Now, uh, let me just show you one other thing. This is not in your notes, but uh, uh, how we see God as Father as to how this... Uh, this works out in our lives. We basically, in relating a child to a father, ask two key questions. Am I loved and can I get my own way? That's love and, and limits or law, uh, love and authority. Uh, children of any kind need that. And we'll see how this works in the family situation in, the, in a moment. We're, we're open out here without any definable limits. Come down to this quadrant and we say, does God love me? You know, there's no basis for believing anything because the authority structure is gone. You come over to this quadrant and you say, does God love me? No. Authority over here that isn't supported by love. If you come up into this uh, quadrant and you say, does God love me? Yes, oh, I know God loves me. He is. knowing where the limits are, so I don't have to always be pushing out there to find out how far I can go. Well, you take that, I'll put it back up in a minute, you take that concept of love, you take that concept of, of uh, a, a father and apply it to you as a parent, or to your parents as you relate to them, and we're asking the same questions. The child says, does my parent love me? Can I get my because love is so, so very important, but uh, not the best. Uh, coming down here, insecure uh, people. Coming over here, and we're talking about parents now, does the uh,
so I don't have to keep pushing because I know where they are. And this is one of the hardest things for us to, to do as parents in our society. I, I have a, a daughter and son-in-law who are missionaries, and they have the advantage of doing it in a non-Western society, but they've raised their boys, four boys, and they're the finest young men you want to meet anywhere in the world with, with clear lines of authority and with constant love authority administered in love. That's the ideal parent. That's the, the biblical concept of parent. Now the problem is the reason we don't parent that way is uh, too often that our view of God uh, has been wrong. We've related to God as Father uh, in, a, in one their growth. If the psychologists would study our daughter and son-in-law's raising of their children, I'm sure they would be very, very critical of it because they did spank and they, they established authority. You know, there just was not even count one, two, three. You obey or you don't obey. And, uh, you know, that's, that's stifling. The oldest of those four boys was given an award in college for creative leadership on campus. He was asked by the senior class to be their spokesman to give what they call the reflection speech at commencement. Far from stifled, these boys are leaders, they're in athletics, they're in music, they're, they're uh, one of them served as a student chaplain on his campus. Uh, this is where we need to be, and it's only gonna be there if we understand God properly, we understand his love and his authority in proper balance. Mercy and truth meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. That's Psalm 85. So, uh, just to, to wind this up, uh, I do have one more overhead here somewhere. Here we go. The better we know God in His holiness, the better we know what sin is. What we said before, uh, the better we understand the sinfulness of sin, the better we understand the mercy and grace of God in forgiving our sin, and the better we understand God's grace, the better we understand our identity as his children, as joint heirs with his son Jesus Christ. People need to begin with the right view of God if they're going to end up with the right view of themselves as the children of God. So. Our time has gone and we need to uh, go to lunch. Let's pray together once again. Father, we just thank you that you have revealed yourself so clearly to us. We ask that you will help us to have this epignosis of you, this experiential knowledge of who you really are, not who our parents have portrayed you as, not who false teachers have told us you are, not what our experience seems to say, but to believe your word to believe your self-revelation. So I just ask your blessing on us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.